Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider, episode 96. I'm Sarah Kachansky. In today's episode, we're going to talk about disability insurance, or critical illness insurance as it's sometimes known. We want to look at what it includes, but also how you go about speaking to customers about insuring something that they don't yet have, and indeed if they're lucky, might never have. As always, I'm not alone, and today I'm joined by Nigel Walsh. How are you doing today, Nigel? I am fantastic and fully prepared and ready, as always. <laughs> no comment. Um, just before we start today's show, we have some news. Uh, so I'm going to hand over to the 11FS Group CEO, David Breer. Hey everybody, it's me, David Breer. Before we start the show, we have some exciting and kind of sad news as well. Sarah Kachansky, our amazing InsureTech Insider host and 11FS colleague, will be leaving us, sadly. Sarah is moving on to another adventure and we could not be happier for her. Sarah's played an instrumental role in not only the success of InsureTech Insider, but 11FS as a whole. We'll of course be bringing her back on, so this won't be the last you'll hear of her. If you want to stay in touch with Sarah, you can reach her on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. That's K-O-C-I-A-N-S-K-I. Right, let's get on with the show. Don't think I've ever spelt my name out before. That's why nobody follows me on Twitter. Hang on. Come on. What's the details? What can I- you share? <laughs> oh, you! Oh, I thought you meant about my name, Nigel, and I was like, "Well, you've been reading it for a couple of years." Um, yeah, no, I am. Um, I'm moving on. I've had a great time at Eleven FS. I've um, had some amazing opportunities working here, um, not least hosting this podcast with you. But um, a fantastic opportunity came up somewhere else in a slightly different industry, and I'm going to go and try my hand at that. So. Um, I am going to take a few weeks off both here and my before I start my new job and then I will resurface and I'm sure to let you know the details when I when I come back on grid. Well, first and foremost, a huge congratulations. I I will share tips and tricks if you want about moving jobs during a pandemic because it's odd beyond all recognition having never met any of my team or my boss or colleagues or been to an office. Uh, so I happily share tips and tricks, but huge congratulations. I am definitely going to be missed being told off twice a month uh, and kept on check and track. So uh, please definitely come back and discuss all the wonderful things of insurance and hopefully InsureTech Insider in four years time, I think it's four years since we've been doing this, will be how we've taken over the world and and, and the the wonderful new world of InsureTech is, is no longer new. It's, it's the default standard as we've always predicted. Well, yes, as I said, I'm, I'm not. Um, I, the one thing I can tell you is that I'm not leaving InsureTech behind. In my new role will um, see me continuing to uh, explore InsureTech alongside FinTech. So um, I, I will be back if, if they'll have me. Sounds like David will anyway. So just We to... will definitely have you if I'm allowed to have you back. And um, <laughs> we will definitely miss you as well. But thank you, Sarah, for everything you've done. Everyone in the industry knows your voice your surname and your tones about giving me out to me most of the time, but everyone knows you and loves what you've done. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. Right. Now, our guests have sat very patiently through that, so I think we will get on with the show. Um, Those guests that I mentioned, uh, first up today, making his InsureTech Insider debut, we have Colin Nabity, CEO at Breeze. How are you doing today, Colin? I'm doing good. Really excited to be here and talk about uh, a very important topic that is uh, often overlooked. Um, so before we get started, can you give us a bit of an overview of what Breeze does? Yeah, we're, we're an insure tech based in the U.S., uh, focused on making it easier and more affordable to access uh, disability income insurance and critical illness insurance. So we, we help our policyholders essentially stay on their feet when they face unexpected financial trauma, uh, things like when they become too sick or hurt to work, or when they receive life-changing diagnosis like cancer, heart attack, stroke, and other major uh, medical events. Well, it sounds like you all have a lot to say on today's topic. You are quite the expert. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, also joining us today, uh, making a welcome return, is David Vanek, co-founder and CEO of Anorak. David, uh, welcome back. How are you doing? Hello. Thank you for having me back. Uh, I'm well, thank you. Um, can you give us a quick reminder of what Anorak is and, and what you're doing? Sure. Um, we make life insurance and expert financial advice accessible to everyone. We want to make sure that people are empowered to make an informed decision and feel confident about their, their choices when it comes to complex products like income protection, critical illness, and life insurance. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you all for joining me. Uh, let's get started. Um, so we're going to start the conversation by talking about what disability insurance is. Um, so I don't know. I think I'll, I'll ask you know everybody to give me perhaps their overview of what disability insurance or critical illness insurance actually covers. Um, uh, Colin, perhaps I'll come to you first. You know, uh, can you give us uh, the the US take on it? Yeah, so so there are actually two completely different products, but they both serve the same purpose. So disability insurance, the way I like to talk about it is uh, it's really uh, insurance for your paycheck. So if something happens where you become too sick or hurt to work, uh, whether that happens on or off the job, uh, disability income insurance steps in to help replace uh, your paycheck so that you know you can use that money to continue paying your mortgage, put food on the table, uh, contribute to retirement, really whatever you want to do with that benefit, it's it's up to you. But it's really there to make sure that you stay on your feet financially while you're working on uh, getting back to work. Uh, critical illness is uh, a, a little bit of a different flavor. Um, essentially, it's tied to major diagnoses that are predefined in the contract, like cancer, heart attack, stroke, aneurysm. Uh, but basically, the, the second you get diagnosed with that, uh, the policy will pay out a lump sum uh, benefit. So again, can be used for whatever you want to use it for, uh, but really intended to kind of plug the gap in between uh, you know, your health insurance and then things that may take you out of work uh, until you get back on your feet. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, and David, is, is that different in Europe or is it, is it a pretty similar, pretty similar situation? So it's a big question because, as you know, there is not a Europe now. You have a <laughs> well, civil well, Europe. Which, yeah. Whichever one you'd like to discuss, we won't go okay, into to that. You, you choose your market. The, 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 the one Europe that is um, uh, in the UK. <laughs> and uh, and for, the, for this one, I think it's pretty similar. Uh, actually, these, these products work across Europe um, probably very similarly with, with some differentiation. Uh, what is very different is that in Anglo-Saxon country, it is an individual choice. So if you don't protect yourself, no one does it for you. Usually when you're in countries like France or, or Germany, your employer and many other groups around you, including the welfare state, will provide that level of cover. Interesting. Nigel, you, are you are you on the edge of your seat there wanting to say something or are you just looking at I'm me? I'm on the edge of my seat because Alex is telling me my microphone <laughs> is positioned badly. Um, but, but outside that, it's interesting. Critical illness is one of those ones that I think I have had for the longest period of time because the, the earlier you buy it, the cheaper it becomes. Uh, I know it sounds odd, but the earlier you buy it, the cheaper it is. And then you keep it for a long period of time. The later that you buy into it, the more expensive it gets as you get older. So it's one of those ones that I've, um, that's been part of my life for a very long period of time. Uh, and, and it's really interesting in hear, hearing Colin and David talk about whether it's income protection or whether it's additional to your life insurance and all the various different variants that you've got are, are around it. So uh, this is one of those that I think we'll get into the conversation around. Is this truly a luxury? above and beyond the things that we have to have or need to have. It's in, sorry, David, please. Another way you can think about those two products, one is cause-driven, which is the critical illness. I mean, you, you, you get diagnosed with a, with a cause and you get a, a lump sum. The other one is result-based. So you can't do something, can't work because of illness or you can't work because of an accident, then you, you get uh, indemnified by, by the insurance company. They are very different products. I've got a very strong opinion on both of them, but I'm sure we'll discuss that later. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your strong? Well, let's go into that now, David, because we're talking about the differences between the two. So, what's your strong opinion? Is it that one is better than the other? One is more needed than the other? And then, Colin, I'll come to you and get your your opinion on that as well. Yeah, I don't know what Colin think about it, but the way we look at it, I mean, in in the UK market, where products are sold by advisors, most advisors will sell you critical illness because it's easy to sell you can be the fear monger and, and list all the, the illnesses that you will never get where the, the risk of claiming are very, 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 very small. Um, and it's easy for you to understand, uh, but it's very expensive. Um, and then you've got an income protection product, which is probably what everyone needs because your likelihood of not being able to work for a long period of time because of illness or accident are very high. Um, and and it's very it's not sold like it's less than ten percent of the policies sold in this market in the UK because it's it's a harder explanation you need to educate people on this product. 
Colin, what's your take on the difference between the two then? Do you feel as strongly as David does about perhaps one being more appropriate than the other or do you do you see them as being complementary perhaps? Yeah, um, I, I think like David said, critical illness is much easier to understand. I'd also, I'd, I'd almost compare it to um, uh, life insurance in, in, in a way that it's it's easy to understand, right? Like if if you have a life insurance policy, you die, your your beneficiary gets money. Same thing with critical illness; it's tied to an event. You get cancer, you get money. You have a heart attack, you get money. Uh, disability insurance is a little bit harder to understand. Uh, you know, what constitutes a disability? What happens if I'm not out of work uh, full time, but I can work part time? What happens if I lose 50% of my income versus 100% of my income? So there's a lot of different nuances. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, it's, it's historically been sold through agents here in the United States. And there's such an education gap here to begin with. Um, and I think agents even have a really difficult time uh, explaining it. Um, so I, I wouldn't say, um, you know, they're both intended to plug that gap if something major happens that, that takes you out of work. Disability is going to cover you for a much longer time. If you buy a long-term policy, critical illness is going to step in, you know, for more, for more short-term. So there's a few different flavors of it, but it's still getting to, um, you know, addressing a very similar protection gap. I, I do think there's, I, th- I think the complexity of it is really interesting, whether you have a decreasing term, level term, and this we'll come onto this in a minute in the, in the education piece. But I think this is one of the ones that, you know, to David's point, is sold based on fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I think the point at which you go through life events, whether you move into an apartment together with someone, you get married, you have children, and you all of a sudden, back to your point about fear, uncertainty, and doubt, mine was something along the lines of, hey, if you die and your kids are left with you and your wife and you can't, or, or you can't work, what are you going to do? So you measure it up against, you know, if you're buying typical home or auto insurance, you measure it up against the cost of repairing the vehicle or the property. But the severity of this is so much broader based on what's left behind should you not be here, that it, even now talking about it gives me kind of goosebumps to think about what if I left the kids and Emma and and I'm not here to support them or do what I would do normally, have they got enough? What pain would they have to go through? This is back to, I guess, your point, David, about the, the fear piece, because even now that worries the hell out of me. It's okay. So, so, cause I've seen, I've seen those adverts before. I've seen these adverts on the telly here in the UK, which are literally that they do exactly that. They're like, what would happen to little Bobby if you got hit by a bus tomorrow? You know, and they, they try, they tug on your heartstrings. And they, and they, and what they say on all those adverts is it's as simple as, you know, filling in this form, no medical required or, you know, all that kind of stuff. But are there actually limitations to who can get this cover? So can anybody or does it depend on your life circumstances? I mean, Nigel insinuated that the younger you are or the earlier you start getting it, the better um, for some of these types of cover. But are there, I mean, Colin, maybe I'll come to you on this, but like, are there, are there some people who'd come to you and you'd say, oh, actually, we just can't cover you because of A, B, C, D. You know, maybe somebody already has um, a designated disability or, uh, you know, maybe I don't some what else what else could affect your ability to get it i suppose yeah so i think i think you're getting into one of the the biggest challenges here in the united states is the the misconception around disability insurance um it, it's it's amazing the amount of of phone calls we get uh from people who have recently had something happen um uh you know where i i'll go back to the misunderstanding of pe- people think that disability insurance is something that you apply for after something happens um, and so there, there are restrictions around, um, you know, pre-existing conditions. Uh, a lot of times insurance carriers will still try and get to the point of being able to offer coverage. But if you have, you know, an, an existing back problem or you've, uh, you know, had a procedure before, they'll still issue the policy but create exclusions around it. So if that ends up taking you out of work or leading to a loss of income in the future, um, it, it will be kind of carved out of the policy. So most, most carriers, too, with specifically with disability insurance, will tie it to you have to be working you know at least 20 to 30 hours a week there's there's some different uh, income uh, uh, minimum income requirements so um, but I think the the biggest challenge in this space is just a complete misunderstanding of what the product is and and the need for it Okay, well, with that note, let's go on to, to the next section of the podcast, which is actually around education, because it sounds like what I'm getting from from all of you is that people just don't understand what it is. 
Um, and the only thing they understand is that they're afraid. And so they panic and they buy something because somebody's made them feel scared. And that, that really isn't a good way <laughs> to sell the most appropriate policy, I'm guessing, generally speaking. Um, so, you know, the first my first question is you know, to both you, Colin, and David, whose job do you think it is to be telling people about the differences between critical illness and disability, what it is, who it's appropriate for, what specific, you know, which specific policies you should be getting? So, you know, David, you've mentioned... Um, agents in, in Europe and advisors, you know, is, is it their job or is it to Nigel's point, they don't understand it anyway? So I, I just sort of, as people who are inside this industry, whose job do you perceive that to be? Maybe you perceive it to be your own. I think it's everyone's job, everyone involved uh, in a discussion, financial discussion with a, with someone should be able to talk about it. You know, protection is the thing you do before you start investing, I mean, saving and then investing. Um, and, and disability is an element of this protection discussion. Uh, insurance companies should educate people about it. Uh, agents, banks, um, any financial publication. So, but ultimately, you raise awareness the way you can. But along the way, this purchase process. I mean, the, the advisors have a big role to play. Um, but there are many ways to be an advisor. You can be a salesman who is disguised as a regulated uh, person, or you can be a sort of a wel- welcoming and, and, and welcoming guide that walk people through the process because disability insurance is a financial conversation around your financial health that end up in an insurance solution. Like it's not like buying a car insurance. So um, that's what we call education. And you need to meet people where they are because they don't have a clue most of the time. Some will do, some, most of them won't. So you really need to give them the tools and the content and ultimately the, the, the product available to them uh, along that journey, which is not a, Three clicks journey, I can tell you. So, in your mind, it's actually it's it's part of a holistic conversation that we should, you know, people should be having generally. Is how do my finances work as a whole? What do they look like? What how do I plan for my future, or my kids' future, or my spouse's future, or my dog's future? The pandemic has been a fantastic education moment for everyone. I mean, sorry to say that. <laughs> and and the furlough scheme in the UK has been the sort of an element of income protection that has been brought to everyone. So the, the, in, it's like the concept is now widely available. This like, you just need to, to make it something more digestible. I, I think um, the education piece for me is one that's going to rage on. Even when you come back, Sarah, in four years' time and we solved insurance, I think education is going to rage on for quite a while. And, and I'm a great believer that this has to start at school. And we have to get our kids and the next generation, the generations after that, all learning, to David's point, about wealth and financial health. And I feel that disability and critical illness are probably in the A-level or advanced studies in secondary school, not primary school. There's lots of things to do before we even get to this that we don't understand fully, even basics like compound interest. This is an advanced topic that I think requires a different level of understanding, which is why I said at the very outset, Many people see this type of cover as a luxury, but many others will scrape and scrimp and save to pay for it in because they've been sold on the fear that little Bobby's going to get hit by a, or daddy's going to get hit by a bus while little Bobby's going to get left behind. I think it's interesting. I mean, I'll come to Colin in a minute, but I just want to say, I think I do a lot of these podcasts across the whole of financial services and a lot of it goes, oh, well, it's got to start at school. And I think it's a little unfair to put it on teachers who already have an awful lot to do. Um, they do try and teach compound interest. It's just that particularly in the UK, it's not very easy with the British education system um, to to have time to explain these concepts in such a way that people grasp them tangibly. I think perhaps there's a broader role societally we may need to place a greater value on financial education as a whole in the same way that societally we need to produce, um, place greater you know, emphasis on nutritional education as a whole. We're not very good at that either. So I just want to say that I, I don't like the idea necessarily that it just has to be the teachers because you have a role to play in educating your kids you know as as do as do your friends as do your teachers as do educational tv I, I programs completely agree. Uh, so, um, and i wasn't i wasn't digging at teachers at all i, I just, my, my point is more on well, i think we need to start the education early and i'm you know i'm a huge proponent of not using cash and all that sort of good stuff the pandemic's made that you know more evident but try finding a pound coin for the tooth fairy is almost impossible these days if you have young children. Or, or my son is currently on summer holidays trying to earn money to pay for a, a gaming computer. 
and, and again, trying to work out how we pay them and the value of money of, you know, are you going to cut the grass or wash the car and, and how you then tick those things off without cash is really interesting. So we are very much trying to educate on the value of money, but it's, uh, it's a really tough one. I, I, your, your point about nutrition is equally as bad, or equally as, uh, um, as relevant, should I say, because I think understanding what's good, bad and indifferent so they don't end up a fatty like daddy would be, uh, would be quite useful. Um, I'm, I will just push that comment aside <laughs> at the end there and come back to Colin because I just want to get you you mentioned education it sounds like you're quite passionate about people needing to understand these products better so um, do you I mean at Breeze do you see education as part of part of your role do you do you, do you set out to do that um, and or do you think that there's a wider role for advisors to play brokers to play maybe you know you, you feel like Nigel does and you think educational establishments have a part to play here as well yeah, I, th- I think it's all of the above. We 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 take the education component, um, you know, extremely extremely serious. Um, and and we're an insure tech. And I think when you say you're an insure tech, a lot of people think, oh, you know, you can do it completely online. We very much have a a very present, um, you know, human component to our to our process because it is such a such a complex product. But going back to you know whose whose job is it to to educate? I, I agree with the you know discussion around uh, uh, schooling and and all of that, but I, I also think that there's a big responsibility on the employers too. Like I, I don't think that you can say that you truly care about the well being of your uh, you know employees and their families if you're not offering coverage and you're not educating um, on that coverage, and then and then not to you know open up Pandora's box here about the. Um, you know, the changing workforce, but there needs to be broader education too, because um, there's, there's such a shift in how people are participating in the working economy, especially, you know, here in the U S going independent, um, um, uh, you know, gig economy, like all, it is easier than ever to earn an income outside of a traditional employer. Um, And so, you know, we're, we're starting to think through how, how do we get coverage and educate even outside of that traditional employer employee relationship? Yeah, no, that, that's a very valid point. I mean, if you think about all the number of people who've gone into to what we gig working, I mean, those who are self-employed, it's this, it's you know similar. This crossover, it's, it's it's existed for a long time, but we talk a lot about the benefits that those people miss out on. Um, but you know, it sounds like from what I'm I'm hearing that maybe people assume that this kind of cover is particularly particularly in the UK or in Europe, where benefits packages are are, are more generous either from the state or employers perhaps than they can be in the US. They, do they assume that they're covered for this? I mean, David, you're nodding. Do you think that's something, is it something you've come across or, or, or am I making too much of a leap there? All the time, all the time. Because so we, we have this hybrid model where people do things online but speak to our advisors as well, like Colin explained. Anytime you talk about income protection, they think first it's an unemployment cover, so which, which it's, it's not. Um, so if you lose your job, you're not protected. And then uh, they think it's PPI sometime, which in the UK was a massive, uh, I think that's a massive deterrent for this disability cover to be sold uh, uh, in tr- I mean, tr- trustfully. Uh, and then, yes, when they, when they try to understand the product, they think that their employer cover them or they get a welfare benefit anyway. So there is a complete misunderstanding of how they are covered by the third parties that are helping them in their life or not helping them in their life. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it's not something I'm now desperately trying to run through my head what benefits when you sign up to a company and they give you a stack of paper that has the benefits. And the one that's very common here in the UK certainly is um, in the event of your death, the company will pay out up four times your your salary to a loved one. That's sort of a form of life insurance. But that I, I think maybe sometimes people think, oh, well, that, that'll do it. That'll cover it. But <laughs> you actually have to die for that to work. And we're talking about perhaps a less critical situation. Um, and, and that's maybe where the, the coverage gap is. People don't, don't fully understand. Uh, Nigel, before we go to the break, you had your hand up. So I'll let yeah, you make I, I was just saying, your, your, your comment about death and service is super valid. And people mistake that all the time for what actually uh, income protection or, or other others are. I think the European versus US is also very interesting. We're very fortunate, of course, in the UK to have the National Health Service and state benefits and so much more. In the US, the cost of medical, as Colin will attest to, um, is just gargantuan. So actually, they're debilitating in the first instance. So actually, our, our breadth of cover from country to country or where we are needs to be taken into account, which is why I think actually this is almost needs to be an advised purchased as opposed to pure acquisition, 
although there are segments of this market that will come on to later, like the over 50s, that are massively, oh, I've reached 50, let me go buy critical illness, or let me go buy uh, something else to make sure that in the event of, I can pay off mortgage or I get a lump sum or I get a, uh, a monthly income replacement or, or whatever else. So there are certain points that we've recognised as an industry that are known for, oh, it's time you check that out because it's you, you've hit 50 all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's interesting because when, when do people think about it? I mean, I, I, I think there's a... I think I mentioned this before, but I had a teacher in, at sixth form who said, you know, there's the two pieces of advice I will give you. You should never buy a new car because the minute you drive it off the lot, it's lost value and always have a pension. And I kind of feel like everybody needs, a, you know, I've always had a workplace pension even before they were mandatory in the UK. And I think it's that kind of advice, maybe to your point earlier, Nigel, that's missing because there was never any conversation about the other things you should do to protect yourself as you get older. But we're going we're gonna to leave it there. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Looking to sharpen your competitive edge when it comes to design? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to solve their users' problems and get to market faster. Discover over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Revolut, Curve, and Soldo, and learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get started today by visiting bit.ly forward slash get a pulse demo. Okay, welcome back. Let's get on with the show. And I'm going to hand over to Nigel now. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Next up, we're going to talk about how we help customers understand the importance of thinking about life-changing events and how to encourage them to plan for the future. And Sarah, almost to your last point that your secondary teacher told you about have a pension and never buy a new car, I almost feel I was given the same advice by uh, an IFA to have a pension. I think at 21, I started paying paying in a tiny amount of money that that umpteen years later is worth a little bit more. Um, but we're, we're okay, it seems, to talk about or even think about pensions. But what about the unthinkable? So where do we even start on this? How, do, how important is clear language, being direct or a clear user experience when talking about topics like, like this? Colin, can I come to you first? I mean, how, how do you even bring this topic up and once you've brought it up, how do we start to engage about its importance? Is it always fear, uncertainty, and doubt to Sarah's earlier point? Um, I, I don't. I don't think we necessarily want to lead with you know uh, fear in our in our marketing. I think it's um, it, it's it's an interesting conversation when you when you talk about life insurance versus disability insurance. You are way more likely to claim on a disability insurance policy during your working careers. Then you then you are to die and and claim on a life insurance uh, uh, policy. So I think it's it's so interesting here here in the United States. Uh, you know, you, you when when you buy a house, um, um, you know one one of the one of the policies that are out there is mortgage protection, um, and and you'd think mortgage protection would be uh, an income protection or disability product. It's a life insurance product, um, and yet people buy that, and it's and it's so heavily marketed. Um, but it is completely the opposite of what is most likely to drive you into bankruptcy um, if, if something were to happen during your working career. So I, I think it's less about uh, marketing from a place of fear and more about marketing from a place of, of uh, you know, tangible purchase decisions and, and the obligations, whether that's a debt obligation, whether that's obligation to your dependents, um, uh, you know, the responsibility to continue providing. Um, and so I, I think that's really how we try to approach it. I'm not a huge fan of, of the doom and gloom um, you know, approach to it. I think it's it's got to be tied back to um, you know real real things. And when you say real things, you you are talking about being just open and honest. I mean, one of one of the brands that we've talked about quite a few times that has made I don't want to say fun out of it, but have been you know almost real marketing in my mind is dead happy, and, and it's kind of like oh, what on earth is that? And again, I just like the way they've not made a song and dance about it, but they've just called it out for what, for, for, for the way it is. Anorak in the same way, David, I think it's also been super clear about um, life insurance. So, so how, do, do insurtechs have a different capability or ability to talk more openly and honestly rather than traditional carriers in the way that they've always done? Yes. 
Yes, but I, I don't think it's because we are in short tech. I think because we are people living in the real world and haven't been like doing this for 20 years. So we we probably see ourselves as formal consumers and we like to be educated. We like to be taken on a journey. Um, we, for example, one, one interesting thing we are, we've been doing for the last three months, right? Six months actually on Instagram. So usually when a broker or an insurer advertise on life insurance, they would say life insurance, five pounds or all these, the spheres, uh, advert that, that you would see. We, we just lead with educational content, letting people learn on, on, on our pages. And then they engage in a funnel where they get a personalized recommendation and when they are sort of understanding the concept, then they can speak to an advisor because these are very complex parameters sometimes to calibrate. And then they end up buying. But it's a very consultative journey that starts online. Um, and, and you let people learn and grow the idea about protecting their, their income. So that's how we look at it. Yeah. Talk, talk us through that because your funnel is quite intuitive. But learning, learning isn't like an online learning that you do as a corporate. You turn up and you do your course and then go away. It's almost a how do we create those nudges? Are you doing that on Instagram or on a regular basis? Yes. Are you, are you doing it bit basis. by bit by bit? Or how does it work? So you, you, because of data, you segment. So you wouldn't engage a family or a young professional the same way. And the messaging you lead with is, is slightly different. But it's never it's more educational about like, what does it mean to protect your income? It's not about, oh, shit, if you, if you couldn't work, you know, you'll be in, in, in very big trouble. And you just explore the concept that Colin explained, like, what are the variables of an income protection? What does it mean to live on the essential spend, non-essential spend? And people are ready to be on that journey. It's a combination of the engine that you know, Nigel, where that profile you and give you a recommendation. But before that, it's about really explaining the key concept that, the product has to be explained. You need to explain this concept, otherwise you're just misselling to everyone. And you need to let them do that. You've given me the, the, the age-old question of, is insurance sold or bought? And I think some of the property and casualty stuff on you know home and auto is definitely bought because it's commodity and easily understood. But let's assume we now know through data, Sarah's starting a new job, and you can see her on Instagram or uh, or other sites. How do we start educating Sarah about the things that she needs to do? Are you? Are, would Sarah naturally be drawn to that to say, "Hey, we've got that because we know your death and service update, or you know you've changed job through LinkedIn or whatever else"? Or do you have to change the way in which we start nudging Sarah to go, "Hey, we've seen we've, we've seen you've just changed. Uh, can we start to engage you in a slightly different way as you've entered the next stage of your career?" I think you, you serve this relevant piece of not advice at this stage, but content, depending on the situation change. So we, we, we do that on LinkedIn, for example, uh, quite successfully. So targeted, um, targeted advertising on key moments or key changes we see in, in the profile. Um, but you do it to help. We don't do it to sell. And to your point, is it sold or bought? I think protection insurance is a combination of both. Bit, and, and it's a hybrid it's a hybrid model depending where people are in the funnel if they're ready to buy they'll buy anywhere on price comparison website they don't need us so that that's a really interesting point colin maybe one for you the, the whole concept of ready to buy because you know if we go back to the previous section around education we're assuming you now know what you need it's a case for how do we get you into that ready to buy piece how does it differ in the states is it, is it the same is it is it a educate, 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 get them ready to nudge and then nudge them over the line? Or is it more of an advice sale? Yeah, I, th I think you have, you know, kind of two, two different groups of people, uh, pe people that know they need it um, and, and are out there actively researching. And, uh, you know, that's a totally different sales process than, than somebody that, that uh, you know, may not be thinking about it. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, something in their life has happened, uh, again, whether it's a purchase decision, whether, whether it's, um, you know, getting married, having a kid where you have added responsibilities, um, um, you know, where it's a much, much more educational process. So I, I think it just depends on who your user is. I just, um, I was just looking up, I was just being nosy because of, because of what David said. And I went to one of the, the comparison websites to just sort of see what, what came up when you type in, um, income protection insurance. And um, 
It's interesting. It, it gives you kind of a, a, a fairly good overview of the different types of income protection insurance you have in, in the UK. So accident, sickness and unemployment, PPI and um, MPPI, which is mortgage payment protection insurance, which is actually possibly the one that I think most people may have come across because when you take out a mortgage, quite often banks will go, oh, this, do you want this product as well? Um, and I think to David's point, most people in the UK go, no, I absolutely don't want any insurance my bank is going to try and sell me. Um, but what was really interesting is, what, for me, most interesting, sorry, rather, is when you get to the bottom of this page, it tells you top industries where people take out income protection. The top one is construction and property, then manufacturing, then engineering, and then IT. And I'd be so interested to know, the construction and manufacturing always makes sense to me because... It's quite obvious that the minute you're kind of injured in construction, it's going to be a lot harder for you to work. So you can you can follow that logic through. But I'm just wondering why those other industries, why are people in IT so keen on buying income protection insurance? Um, I just wondered to the point about education and and, in, and in, is that because those industries educate people? Is that because they it comes as a benefit more commonly with those industries? Um, it's just fascinating to me. Well, it's also um, search engine optimized content, so I wouldn't pay too much attention to it. Yeah, <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think it. I mean, if it thinks I'm in construction, I've been googling some very strange things <laughs> lately. <laughs> but but the it the it one might be an interesting one to say. Um, there was a study in the US that I read a while back that talked about your level of income and what you do with it. So if you're a high income earner and you can't work, you actually invest in some of these things. Uh, at a different rate and level to maintain that lifestyle. So if I chose to invest in critical illness or, or income protection or whatever else, it would be to maintain the lifestyle rather than change lifestyle versus maintaining a status quo to certain things. I can't physically do something. So I think the, the differences between physical work and, and non-physical work are, are obvious in that instance, I think, Sarah, to your point about construction, being able to work on site, not on site. Um, it would be interesting to dig into that further, actually. I'm not sure it's purely just uh, SEO on that one, David, but uh, I, I'd be fascinated to see the study for sure. The The other thing I was going to say was, is trust an issue here? So if you think about the whole life insurance and um, inability to work, as soon as you start asking questions like, and again, you, there's lots of, lots of these policies are purchased with underwriting upfront and underwriting after the event. Again, a big difference, especially things like over 50s. So so if I said to you, one of the common questions is, do you smoke? Or is there a history of diabetes? By default, maybe it's just me having worked in the industry too long, we all think of, oh, darn, the insurance company's trying to get me because my mum's got diabetes and it's type one. Therefore, it's going to happen to me and something's going to go wrong. Or my dad's had heart disease and therefore I'm at risk of heart attack and my price goes up. Is there a trust issue here or how do we how do we make sure we get enough information from the client to underwrite correctly without getting too much to put them off? David, do you want to go first? So there is definitely a trust issue in general. And people, the first question they have is, will it pay out? And particularly on income protection, like, will it pay out if I can't work? Um, the underwriting... Everyone going through that journey understands that health is a big factor in, in the decision of the insurance company. So I think they're ready to go on that journey and disclose. So I don't think there is a trust factor. There is a fear factor. Like if I'm in a, in a bad health condition, will I be covered and can I protect my family? But from what we see with clients, there is not a, there is not, um, a fear factor on this, uh, a, a trust factor, sorry. Colin, what's your take? And I'm just going to throw in another question on that around fraud. How, how much do you see? So is there, a, is there a trust up front? And then are you seeing much fraud on the back end of all these? Yeah. So I, I, I do think trust is a huge issue. You know, in, in, in our flow, we, we're, we try and balance uh, getting as much information up front as we can to ensure that we're, we're quoting an accurate price. We're putting in them into you know, the correct occupation class because it's, it's a horrible user experience to you know, go through that process, get to the end of it, and have to re-quote or tell them, hey, you know, the price went up because um, you know, went up 25% because we put you in the wrong occupation class or, or we didn't adequately ask you the right, the right question. So I think you know, it's, it's an incredibly important um, um, or the, the user journey is, is incredibly important there. With, with fraud, I think it, it's probably a combination. You know, I think it's something that all insure techs deal with, the ability to you know, do things online. You may, you, you, know, you may think, hey, I don't have 
uh, to go through some of the normal protocols that I would need to go through to get insurance. Um, so I think there is there is a little bit of that, but I think there's also too a misunderstanding sometimes of hey, this thing happened ten years ago or five years ago, so so the the uh, consumer may think that it's not relevant, even though it is relevant. So I think sometimes it's intentional, but sometimes it's also you know totally um, you know missing or, or not intentional at all. Do, do you think consumers, though, are trying to hide things on purpose? Because, or, or is it just a case, as your point, it's just not intentional? Hey, I didn't realize my heart attack 20 years ago matters. Therefore, I, I, I'm okay. Thanks very much. Not think twice about it. I, I think, in general, most people are not trying to game the system. Um, you know, you do have a few bad actors, but that's every single insurance policy, every single industry ever. Sarah, you go jump in. No, I was just going to say I think I think it's probably both. But what I was laughing at was that somebody thinking they'd had a heart attack twenty years ago wouldn't have been relevant. <laughs> um, I was just like, that's yeah. I was thinking more that you know maybe that their grandma had diabetes or something they thought might wouldn't be wouldn't be relevant. Um, no, I think it's probably a combination of both. I think I think there's an, a, another element that plays into this as well, which reminds me of you know when you go to the doctor and they say how much do you drink or how many cigarettes do you smoke. And you say, I drink, I don't know, two bottles of wine a week. And the doctor writes down, you drink four. Or you say, I smoke five cigarettes a day or a week. And the doctor writes down, you smoke 20. Um, and I wonder if there's kind of that underplaying as well when people are filling information. There's kind of – because because I think the, the, the problem when you start addressing – questionnaires or, or surveys that do address people's health is that there's a lot of shame associated with it. Um, and, and you know, I suspect people possibly aren't ashamed of saying, I've had a heart attack. But they might be ashamed of saying, I'm really overweight, or I have type 2 diabetes caused by my weight problem, or I drink a lot more than I should, and therefore I'm more likely to have X, Y, Z. And so I think I think that maybe plays into dishonesty as well. Um, it's kind of, I don't know, does that, does that make sense? I think it kind of, it's almost a psychological thing. And I wonder how you have to sort of get around that. Colin? Yeah, I was going to say too, I think people are, are very concerned about what people are doing with their, their private health data, how that's being used, how it's being stored. Um, what, you know, what are, what are you using it for, you know, during underwriting outside of underwriting? Is it, is it being purged? And so I think that's another conversation in itself too, is just the, the overall discussion of security. I think just to add to that point, sorry, I was going to say, if employers start offering this benefit, I wonder how many people would be, or if employers are offering this as a benefit, how many people would worry that their employer now knows that they smoke 20 cigarettes or, you know, whatever else, it, that the employer might get that hold of that information about their lifestyle and that it may cause their employer to, uh, to treat them differently. I think this is probably one of my favourite areas in terms of how the whole data is being used to change lives for the better. And I look at my parents' generation, and I think they're massively unhealthy. Again, they don't listen to the show, so thankfully I won't get given out to, but massively unhealthy. I look at our generation, and I feel that we are either, we've polarized into people that are relatively fit and healthy and exercising, or dare I say, heading into the world of obesity and whatever else. And I think if you look at some of the, the reports that are out there now, they're looking at obesity as one of the greatest crises of the next, of the next generation. But if we start to trust and engage in the industry to make us better, in the same way that we've done with auto and telematics, if we can get telematics for ourselves, and I'm looking around me here, I've got a blood test kit, I've got a continuous glucose monitor, and I've got more devices attached to more limbs that track me, I have no qualms about giving my data to an insurer or other party, even my DNA, to say, if you can help me be better, I'd like to know how. And as I'm watching Sarah drink water, I'm definitely not drinking enough water. But the thing, the thing is, the thing is, if it's we gin. oh darn it, you and your gin, every it's not, it's not gin, it's not gin for the record. <laughs> See, there we have someone talking about to the doctors. It's not gin, I promise. Wink, wink. Um, <laughs> but I think, but all this data is out there. We're just going to get more and more of it. And I think people, if we can trust the organisation to do things with us and make us better like we've seen on driving, we've got an opportunity to change that level of trust, change that level of engagement, and actually make help people become healthier going forward and live longer, healthier lives. So the net, net, the net, net of it is a positive outcome for everyone when it comes to things like uh, disability and, and so much more. I mean, you, you only have to look at the, the football or the soccer that took place and the Euros where the Danish guy 
at the peak of his career, collapsed on the pitch with a, a cardiac arrest. So I think these are really good reminders for so many to say that actually we do need some of these things and covers to start tracking it. You, you could be the you know peak peak physical fitness of your of your life and still have these things happen to you. So I think I think I think you're quite unusual though, Nigel, if I may say so. Like there are I think there are plenty of people out there who don't want to know. The same people who don't go to the dentist, the same people who don't go for health checkups, who don't I mean, I certainly don't have any of those things because I wore a fitness tracker for a while and every time I looked at it, it, my heart rate went up and then I panicked my heart rate was going up and then it would go up and up and up and up. And so I had to stop looking at it because I, I thought I was going to give myself a heart attack. Um, you know, it, I, I think I'm just going to say that I think you're, you're quite unusual and I think that there is a journey that a lot of other people have to be brought along on to get to the point where you are, where people are willing to share openly and not worry to Colin's point what is going to happen with that data, where it's going to be shared, whether it's going to be shared with an employer or what the response might be from the provider. You know, how what tone does the provider deliver any information in? You know, because if your provider says, we're going to charge you £100 a year, you fatty, but if you lose some weight, then maybe we'll take the price down. That's not that's not going to work. Yeah, I, I, look, I think you're spot on. I, I've always been, I always say an early adopter, but I like trying these things out and I trust things by default. Definitely not everyone's case. You know, as I said, my dad's a great example of, of not doing that. Um, let, let's sum this up then. So how do we even, how do we, close this coverage gap david where do we where would we start to start bringing the gaps together and i i, I want to try and collectively answer the question i had at the outset is is this a nice to have or is this truly a luxury type of cover so first of all in many countries it's mandatory for an employer to provide this cover to their employees it's mandatory to get this cover when you get a mortgage from your bank so it's definitely not a nice to have. And in many countries, it has been enforced by law or by a market practice. And then once you've said that, in any country where it's not mandatory, you need to put in place the right type of players to help people navigate this maze and understand in fairness why they should buy it and how to buy it properly. And I'm talking about the UK, I'm talking about the US, Asia, many other countries. Colin, you want to chime in? Yeah, so it's it's not mandatory here in the United States. We we have uh, a few different flavors of it. Um, uh, workers' compensation is typically, you know, one, one of the safety nets that, that people think are going to step in if something happens. But when you look at the actual stats, you know, roughly ninety nine percent of disabilities here in the United States stem from things that happen off the job. Um, and and so I think you know we, we we need to start with we need to start the the education um, you know with employers. We need to start. Uh, the education discussion. I think carriers have a, a massive responsibility to better um, educate the the agents out there um, and advisors out there that are that are working with individuals that are working with families. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of places, and then and then obviously I think it's it's our job as as um, you know insure techs in this space to make sure that. Um, you know, we're the ones leading the charge here. We're the ones that are, um, uh, you know, carrying the torch to say, hey, this this is something that is important. And I, and I don't think it's a luxury thing. I think um, you know, one of the misconceptions about this is there, there are entry level ways to get a policy. Cover, cover your mortgage payment. Cover your student loan. Take, take out a, month, a small monthly benefit that if something happens, uh, your, your life will probably be a little rough, but at least it won't be as bad as if you had no coverage. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think this isn't, this isn't the, you know, the BMW or Mercedes of, of insurance policies. There are entry level ways to get a little bit of coverage for not a lot of cost um, that will help in the event that, that something happens. David, you wanted to jump in? Yeah, and it starts with access. It needs to be accessible and from a price point, but as well, like, digitally. I mean, you can't buy income protection digitally end-to-end in the UK. None of the carriers has made the investment of digitalizing a proposition that you can buy end-to-end online. So it's just because they don't see the, the benefit or they think the number is too low and, and, and there won't be any traction, so... It's um, this is really something in short technique to tackle. I, I know we're uh, I know we're going to run out of time. So let's just hand to Sarah very quickly for your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a huge gap in the market. It's something that you know, I I work in this industry. I hadn't even thought about until we bought a property, and I think that is a point in the UK where people it does trigger people here because it's not something that's mandatory with employers. It's a huge opportunity for somebody to step in and and sort of 
do the job of educating people. You know, I, I know, David, you, you, you guys are working on this, but people, if people knew more about it and if somebody were to put the investment, the time and the effort into telling people about it, I think a lot more people would come along for the ride, particularly if it wasn't done in that fear-mongering way. But I also think from the conversation we've had, I'm, I'm just thinking it's such a no-brainer for the um, – Employee benefits platforms. We've seen an awful lot of lately across the UK and the US. Um, I know there's Perkbox, but I know there's there's lots of others. You know, companies like that. This would be, or, or even at the HR platforms. You know, the the HR platforms. It would be such a great thing for them to go and find a partner and offer through that because a lot of these employment platforms will give me money off a Virgin Gym membership or a restaurant or beer. But actually, it would be much more useful for me to to have a way to access maybe multiple providers who offer a service like this. It just feels like that would be a really good way in, particularly in the UK and the US where people aren't aware of what it is and it's not mandatory. So if anybody does that and makes their millions, I said I said it here. So if I could just have a cut, that would be great. I think we're buying, David's going to tell me he's already doing it. We're, we're, we're buying into the sarahkachansky.com vision. I think Anthem has got a stake in this as well from Sophie's last conversation. Look, we, st- we started the show on education. It feels like we're finishing the show on education we haven't even really talked about things like the gig worker and the gig economy. And, and we, we've seen so much shift. We've always talked about the employee having mandated this or buying a house. But what about, you know, Sarah and I have talked to others about rental and the fact that renters, the average term for renters is something like 16 years. So if you don't buy a house for 16 years, is that the first 16 years of your life that you could have had disability benefits and whatever else that you've therefore not got? And it's, it's just getting back to that where and how we engage in a way that's relevant for you. This is one of those things that we've all read the stories. It will never happen to me. And that's exactly one of the things that we're trying to cover is, hey, we know it's like a one in a million chance, but the, the hit by a bus or fall off your bike or, you know, I met a guy on a cycle ride once that lost his leg in a freak rugby accident. I mean, there's just... the the. It's protecting against those sorts of things that would be life-changing that we need to start, dare I say, educating earlier for and saying, can these be affordable or not? It's truly fascinating. With that, Sarah, back to you. Thank you very much, Nigel. Well, that wraps up today's discussion and indeed my time hosting InsureTech Insider. Thank you all so much for joining me today and for the last three and a bit years. Um, Before we close out, though, I'm going to ask my guests, as I always do, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Colin, we'll start with you. Yeah, um, you can find us online at meetbreeze.com and I'm on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. David? And you can find us on anorak.life and for business purposes on LinkedIn, Anorak Technologies. Brilliant. And Nigel? You can find me at Twitter at Nigel Walsh. And as David mentioned at the top of the show, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave a review. It does help to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider. You can find us on Twitter at Instech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. That's it from me for now, but um, hopefully I'll be back on InsureTech Insider very soon. Mm-hmm.